You know, we've taken this idea of birth announcements, I think, to a new level, this uh, gender party reveal. You know, I've seen it used to be maybe a, a blue balloon was on the end of the mailbox, and, and now it's gone to a whole other level. I saw one guy come in with a helicopter and just drop blue confetti all over the place. Uh, the classic that Lauren found for me, I asked her to just, you know, kind of gender party reveal fail or whatever they are. And uh, this guy shot a, a bullseye, and, uh, and it exploded, and blue stuff went in the air. Everything's good so far. Um, but it was in the, a very dry part of a western part of the country. And so flames were ignited. Uh, the only thing, the last thing you hear is, pack up the stuff, we got to go. 47,000 acres destroyed, $8.2 million to fight this fire, this uh, gender reveal party gone really, really bad. Well, you know, we have kind of a birth announcement in the text we're looking at today. This, this idea of God announcing uh, the birth of his son through this star. I mean, it's extraordinary. We've been talking about it for thousands of years. It, it leaves us just scratching our heads, asking questions such as, you know, how they know it was a, that star or his star? How'd they follow it? And how many went? And how'd they know to go? And there's all these questions about it. And uh, I hope to answer maybe a couple of them, probably not all of them. Uh, but I want you to see that God had a plan in the announcement of the birth of his son. But in that passage in Matthew 2 that was read, you also see some very surprising responses to the announcement. Very interesting responses. But, but let me first explain what God wanted to reveal about the nature of this child. You know, when you think about it, we knew as we have read through Scripture, he was coming as a king, right? So when the, when the wise men went and spoke to Herod, they, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So, so they knew he was coming as a king, but what kind of king was he coming as? Well, we learned that first that he's a promised king. I mean, th this Matthew 2 shows he's a promised king. Now, we've read these scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, think about it. A promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 of a king coming, a son who would crush the head of the serpent. But it's not just Genesis 2, it's Genesis 12. A promise was made to Abraham by God uh, that, that he would be a blessing to the nations. And in Genesis 22, we find out that the blessing will come through a son. Same promise was made to David in 2 Samuel. And, and this promise, though, was that your son will be a king and he'll have an eternal throne. Uh, but, but then as Isaiah was read, later on to Isaiah, we hear what? We hear that this king will be a child who will be born both of a virgin and, and yet he will be God with us, and he'll be wonderful counselor. He'll be mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I mean, this is the nature of God promising through the ages that he would bring about a king. And you know what? The people were expecting it. I mean, they did. In the writings of the prophets, they were expecting it. When you think about at the birth of Jesus, Simeon was there waiting. Anna was there waiting. Can you imagine? God made a promise throughout the centuries and on this morning, he brought forth the promise. He brought forth the fulfillment of the promise. But he's not just a promise king. He's a sovereign king. 
you notice in the way that God uses creation to announce the glory of his son. Did you notice that in the text as it was read? They said, we saw his star. It's not we just saw a bright star, we saw his star. It's his star. Now, there's all kinds of things that we can speak about and speculate on. How did it all happen? Well, we don't know. What we know is this. Stars don't move on their own. God moves the stars. God's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the governor of all things. And he moved the star to draw these men from the east to worship. God wants his son worshiped. And he brings them from faraway places. But this too was talked about. In Isaiah chapter 60, we read these words, Arise, shine, your light has come. Nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your radiance. Caravans of camels, they will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praise of the Lord. God put in that 700 years before. They will come from the nations. God will use creation, the very stars, to draw men and women to Christ. But he's more than just a promised king and a sovereign king. He's a global king. He's a king of the nations. You know, Matthew doesn't record anything about the shepherds. He only records the wise men. These magi, these magi, don't think like David Copperfield magic men. They're magi, they're, they're politicians, they're learned men, they're astronomers, they're studying medicine. They were brought probably from Babylon, but they came from the nations. God was showing that the nations will come and ultimately worship the sun. Now, you might want to ask, well, how they know? I mean, how, how would they have figured all that out? Well, remember this. Israel was exiled in Babylon for years. Daniel, by the way, in chapter 2, verse 48, he was called a Magi. And there was still a community of Jews in Babylon at the time. They probably would have shared the promises, and these wise men would have followed them. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 8, 11, he says, they're going to come from the east and they're going to come from the west and they're going to dine with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. But, but here's the irony. You know, when Matthew begins his gospel, he brings the nations to Christ. When he ends his gospel, he sends his people to the nations to bring Christ. God wants his son glorified and the nations will do it. So here's a challenge to Christianity. We're not at liberty to determine what we think about Jesus. Well, I think he was a great guy. I think he was a philanthropist. I think he was a prophet. I think he was a good teacher. God has revealed the Son to us, and he's done it through the promises of Scripture. We learn about Christ through the Scriptures, uh, but we also learn about Christ through the Spirit. God draws men and women to Christ. Jesus himself said, no one can come to me except those whom the Father draws. This is an incredible truth. God is wanting to draw you through many means and measures and circumstances, difficulties and challenges. Some of you come quickly to see the glory of Christ. Others resist and resist like heels are getting dug in the ground. But God draws us to the Son. And all the nations will come. On that final day that was read in Revelation 21, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God will redeem people from every people group he has, he has created. So, so this is the news. This is the announcement. This is his reveal. 
He's revealing him to be a, a promised and a sovereign and a global king. But do you notice the responses? Because the responses are recorded. It's really quite, people weren't enamored. Everybody wasn't all excited. You think they would be, they weren't. You look at some, actually had kind of a hostile approach to this idea. You notice Herod. Herod was threatened. He was troubled, the scripture says. He was agitated. Why? Because these wise men came up and they said, they said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod wasn't born king. Herod was appointed king by Rome. By manipulation and bribery, he became king. He was deeply threatened. Here is one who's born king. This isn't an appointee. He was born for the position. He felt threatened. But not only him, all the town as well. Now, why were they threatened? Well, they could have been threatened because Herod was a bit of a psychopath, no doubt. But then maybe they were threatened because, you know what? They didn't want any change. We know what we got with Herod. We don't want any change. Maybe they didn't want to have anything in their life get adjusted by some new king coming. So you see kind of a hostile reaction. Now, now listen, this is, this is the dark side of Christianity. There's a dark side here. That when God announces the coming of his son to be king, it, it isn't a, eh, I'm interested not. It, it, this is, no, he's now king, establishing his rule and reign on this earth. The people that are hostile today to this idea are usually those who don't want to worship him. Uh, maybe, maybe your hostility is born out of, you want autonomy. You don't want a king coming in declaring how you ought to live or how you ought to think. Or perhaps you just love the fact that we live in an age of permissibility and this king coming in with, with rules is distasteful to you. Let me just say this. If you're hostile to this idea, some of you may be frustrated with God. You may be angry at God. You may be disappointed in God. I understand that. Many of you are suffering, you're lonely, you've prayed, you're struggling in life. God hasn't answered your prayers. He hasn't come to be all that you thought he might be to you. I can sympathize with you on that. This is different. This is a hostility. This is, I don't want a king to come. Herod didn't want a king to come. They didn't, he didn't want to submit to Christ as king. If that is you here today, this is a gentle warning. It's a gentle warning. The kingdom of Christ is going out. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will ultimately confess. It's a gentle warning to us who listen to these words. So there's the, there's the response of hostility, but you also see this response of kind of ambivalence. You, you see these chief priests that Herod consults. You know, Herod says, hey, where is he going to be born? And you know what? They don't have trouble answering the question. They don't have to, as I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon, they don't have to go into some old dark library and pull off some old book and dust it off and figure out where is this Messiah going to be born. They knew without delay. They said Bethlehem. They knew where it was. But here's the shocker. They didn't go. They didn't send anybody to see it. You know they had to have heard about the shepherd's experience, that was right in Bethlehem. That was seven miles away. That angelic visitation to the shepherds. You know they had to hear about Zacharias. He was a priest in Jerusalem who saw an angel. He disbelieved. It's all recorded in Luke 1. And he was struck with silence. 
He didn't speak. He was a preacher. You think they would have heard that, but they didn't go. Here, here these men, they're so learned, but they don't seem to love them. They're studied, but they don't have a heart for this Messiah to come. This is the second dark side to Christmas. You can be very close and yet be really far away. Christmas is something, you know what? Uh, we don't need Christ for Christmas. We can make it a family holiday. And we can have parties and cheer and food. We can sing about snow and it's too cold outside to go anywhere. We can do all those things with Christmas. But, but here, here's the dark side. You can be so close and yet not get it. Yet not get it. Again, we have a gentle warning. God warns because he loves he warns because he loves. He warns because he is gracious to us. Have you been ambivalent to Christ? When you think about your Christmas celebration, how central is Christ to it? How important is he to it? Is it just a small part of things to give a, a spiritual flavoring to the holiday? Again, there's a general warning because he loves us. You know, many of us are pursuing many good things in life. Security, health, position, family. Those are all good things, no doubt. Let Christmas be a time where your priorities are realigned. He is the king who has come from God for us. He's come to save. He's come to deliver. So we see two warnings here, the hostility and the ambivalence. Well, notice the wise men, though. They kind of show us a different path. They show us a different response. You know, in, in 10 and 11, let me just read that, those two verses again. He says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, the writer, Matthew, uses four words for joy They're to explain exceeding, rejoicing, joy, great. Four words to explain how incredibly happy they were. Can you imagine? I mean, they left probably from Babylon, a thousand miles away, through the desert. They had heard none of his teaching. They had seen none of his miracles. And yet they came all that way. What did they know about him? Well, they knew he was a promised king. They would have heard that. They knew he was a sovereign king because of the star. And they knew he was a king of the nations because here they are coming from the nations. What moved them to have such humble worship? Well, I wonder if it wasn't this. When they saw Jesus. Did they, well, let me ask you this. Did they know he would lay down his life for them? We're not told. But I bet you when they went to see him and they saw Mary and Joseph, you know, I believe, it's reasonable to assume, Joseph would have told them about the angelic visitation he had, recorded in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel said to him, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I think that's what would drive them to worship him. Because you notice that they bowed down to him. What would make a noble aristocrat, a, a man of great learning and honor, what would move him to put his face to the ground in front of a baby? Remember, there, there was no throne, there was no palace, there were no guards, there was no entourage. It was a little baby in a very poor place. 
and yet they bowed to the ground, and they worshipped him, him who would die for them. They wouldn't be the last ones to bow before him either. And then they open up their, their gifts, these royal gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It isn't as if Jesus needed it. It was more a reflection of the greatest things we have in this world are nothing to be compared to you. They gave him their best because he is even greater. How will you celebrate Christmas tonight and tomorrow? Well, you're going to be with family, obviously. You're going to hopefully have good food. You're going to have a lot of sweet times and memories. I, I pray that you would see those as gifts of God. I pray that you would see those as like shafts of light coming from the sun. You would know where they come. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. But you see those shafts of light and you follow them right back up to God. And I pray that you would give him glory for the sun. I pray that you would think, you would ponder, you would contemplate that God had chosen a day and a place to bring forth a son to be a king, to establish a kingdom, and to call the nations to himself. And he would lay down his life to save us from our sins through faith in his work. This is a sweet celebration. Sweet with many good things in life. Let him be the best for you this, this day and this time. Make efforts to encourage one another over the glory of Christ having come. And we know that the first coming is, is the foretaste of what will be. Advent is a time. We don't just celebrate the first coming, but we wait for the second, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more mourning, death, crying, pain. The old order of things that all of us are struggling through will pass away and we'll rejoice with him forever, an eternal Christmas. Let me pray for us.